Please remain standing in honor of God's Word. This morning we're continuing on in the book of Acts, and we'll look at Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. Acts 8, 1 through 25. If you'll recall, um, Stephen has just been stoned to death. He's asked the Lord Jesus to receive his spirit. And then he's prayed with a loud voice that the Lord would not hold this sin against them. And we read in verse 1, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bonds of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for the further spread of the gospel that we see in this passage. Father, we see the Samaritans being enfolded into the body of Christ, and it is beautiful. Father, there are many great lessons here. I pray that You will teach us. 
Father, help us to grow as witnesses. Father, help us to grow as evangelists. Help us to grow in our love for You. And help us to grow in our love for the church and our love for one another. And help us also to grow in our love for the lost. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. William Carey was a simple cobbler. Any of you kids know what a cobbler is? Anybody ten or under know what a cobbler is? It's not something you eat. (laughs) A cobbler was simply a shoe repairman. That was William Carey's occupation. But he felt called of God to take the gospel to the heathen in India. And he presented this to church leaders and they responded by saying, if God wants to reach the heathen, He'll do it without you. Now, while it's true that God can reach the heathen without us, He certainly doesn't need us. Nevertheless, He has chosen to use us simple, ordinary people to take the Gospel to the heathen. And sometimes he'll do it on his own initiative, and sometimes he'll do it with a combination of two. When I was taking a class last summer, my professor, Legan Duncan, told a story that he heard uh, from some missionaries in the Middle East. And I wish I could remember exactly where they were. Uh, But they were in the Middle East, um, a place that is hostile to the Gospel. And this missionary and his wife, they came to a, a gas station. They filled up with gas. And outside the gas station was a man holding an automatic weapon. He was just standing there by the door. And they saw this, and they just they got their gas, and minding their own business, went in, paid for it, and then they left. As they're leaving, the wife says to the husband, you need to turn around. I really sense that God wants us to give that man a Bible. And the husband says, oh, honey, <laughs> did you see what he was holding in his hands? Uh, We need to be very careful how we witness in this part of the world. And the wife said, I really sense that God wants us to give that man a Bible. And the husband said, no, I I don't think that would be prudent. And he just kept driving on. Well, the wife was really burdened. She said, I really think we need to do this. And he said, no, I, I don't think so. So she starts praying. Father, forgive my cowardly husband. May the blood of that man up. Wait a second. Wait a second. You you really feel that burden? And she said, "Yes, I can't. I can't explain it, but I really do." Reluctantly, turned the car around. He walks up to that gentleman, hands him a Bible, and that Muslim man said, "God appeared to me in a dream, and He told me to stand right here." And he said that in the next few days, someone would hand me the words of eternal life. Now, God can. He he can talk to anybody He wants anywhere. He is God after all. But the beauty of it is that He includes us in reaching unbelievers for Him so that we have the joy of being part of the process of giving people the words of eternal life. Now, as we've said, our key verse in the book of Acts is Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Luke records the words of Jesus saying to the apostles, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses 
in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And that basically is what the book of Acts is always all about. The Holy Spirit coming upon His people so that they would have power, so that they could be witness and take the Gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, this is also the outline of the book of Acts. Thus far, we've seen the Gospel limited to the city of Jerusalem. But now we're about to see the second phase of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And now the Gospel is going to go to all Judea and even Samaria. And then after that, we'll see it go into Gentile land. Now, the question I want us to ask is how did God bring the Samaritans into the body of Christ that was predominantly Jewish at this point? How did He bring together Jews and Samaritans? Well, let's consider five ways in which that happened. First of all, God brought them together through His sovereign purposes. He brought them together through His sovereign purposes, which we have to confess are sometimes mysterious and sometimes unusual, at least from our perspective. This is what we read in Acts 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now, we know that ultimately, behind all persecution is Satan. In weeks past, we've mentioned that Satan's first strategy was physical persecution. It began with the imprisonments of the apostles. We saw that on a couple occasions. But now he's going to ratchet it up a notch. And we have martyrdom taking place. We have the first martyr, Stephen, that we looked at last week. And now, on this day, we have a complete outbreak of persecution against all the Christians, and they are scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles that were told stayed in Jerusalem. Now, here's the question I have for you. What was Satan trying to accomplish through the stoning of Stephen and this outbreak of persecution? What was he trying to accomplish? What was his objective? Anybody want to tell me? What's that? Close it down. Close it down, yeah. Yeah, there's a new business in town, this church. Uh, he's trying to close it down. He's trying to destroy it. At the very least, he's trying to silence the Christians so that he can have this gospel contained a little bit. Now, here's the question I have for you. Follow-up question. Did he succeed? No, he did not succeed. In fact, his strategy completely backfired and it blew up in his face. Instead of smothering the gospel and stifling the gospel, this persecution actually led to the spread of the gospel and the advancements of God's kingdom. One commentator said, the wind increases the flame. And there's another good saying from church history that you should be acquainted with, and that is the statement, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As martyrs are mowed down and as their blood goes into the ground, the church rises again and actually grows and increases and spreads. Let me give you just one example. How many of you are familiar with Jim Elliott? Raise your hands. 
Most of the people in this room are familiar with Jim Elliott. Why are you familiar with him? Because of how he died, right? Trying to take the gospel to the Aka Indians. He was in his 20s, never even made it to the 30s, and he was speared to death along with four others. Again, what was the strategy of Satan? We are not going to allow the Aka Indians to be converted. We're going to stop these missionaries from spreading the gospel. But consequently, the missionaries are martyred. The whole world hears about it. Tens of thousands of men and women have been inspired. And because of the name of Jim Elliott, they went to the mission field. So once again, Satan's strategy backfires and it blows up in his face. And it only results in greater missionary effort going forth. And even those of us who don't go to foreign lands as missionaries are encouraged by Jim Elliott. And we want to be that bold. We want to lay down our lives for Christ. So we too are inspired by his story. So Satan's strategy doesn't work. It only results in the spread of the gospel. Verse 2, we're told, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. That's kind of interesting. Why is that included in here? Uh, To receive a proper burial was a sign of honor. And I think even in this little parenthetical verse right here, we're told implicitly that God takes care of His own even when they die. God is taking care of Stephen. He's making sure that he gets a proper burial and that he's honored in his death. Verse 3, But Saul was ravaging the church. The NASB translates this, Saul began to destroy the church, or so he thought he was. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. Notice he didn't even spare the women. He even drags off the women. Moreover, he wasn't content with imprisonment. He sought the death of Christians. Look at Acts 9.1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. That's very literal. He really was seeking the murder of the disciples. And if you turn ahead and Acts a little more to 22.4, Paul says, I persecuted this way, and this way is a reference to Christianity. He was called the way. He says, I persecuted this way to the death. And again, that's literal. He was killing Christians. And then turning ahead a little more to chapter 26 in Acts, Paul says in verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my votes against them. So remember, Saul was standing there when Stephen was put to death and he gave his approval. He cast his vote. Perhaps he was the point person in leading this persecution against the church. So this persecution led by Saul and others only served to advance the kingdom of God. The second way in which God brought Jews and Samaritans together was through the preaching of ordinary people. Look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Now who was scattered? The apostles? No, remember, we're told specifically they stayed in Jerusalem. 
So who were those that were scattered? Ordinary Christians. Ordinary Christians who couldn't take the heat. And they left Jerusalem. They went into all Judea. They went into Samaria. And they just evangelized wherever they went. Now, you might think at first they were cowards. Well, if they were bold, they would have stayed right there. But before you think they're cowardly, realize they evangelized wherever they went. Just outside of Jerusalem, they continued to speak. They went into Samaria. They continued to speak, even though it could still cost them their life. So they were very bold, these nameless amateur missionaries, as one person described them. But they were bold. And isn't that what we're called to be? Just common, ordinary missionaries who are to take the Gospel wherever we go. And, and sometimes we might even bemoan the fact that we're the only Christian in our company. Remember Howard Hendricks, a professor at Dallas Seminary, saying that a gentleman came to him on one occasion and he said, Professor, I, I'm the only Christian in my company. All these employees, all, all these supervisors, and I'm the only Christian. I haven't been able to find another Christian. And Howard Hendricks said, Are you serious? You're the only Christian. He said, yeah, it is really rough. I'm the only Christian. And Howard Hendricks said, that's absolutely amazing. I can't believe that. He said, what? That I'm the only Christian? He said, no, I can't believe that God's entrusted that whole operation to you. That's amazing. That's what we're called to be. Take the Gospel wherever we go. Tell people about Jesus Christ. God uses Ordinary, average people. I mentioned William Carey earlier. He was just a cobbler. That's all he was. And now we know him today as the father of modern missions because of his boldness in taking the gospel to India, even when those in the church discouraged him. I love the story. On one occasion, Carey was attending a business party and a snobbish lord tried to insult him by saying very loudly, I understand, Mr. Carey, that you were a shoemaker. William Carey said, No, sir, I was only a cobbler. I, I, I wasn't even a shoemaker. I wasn't even that left. I was just a cobbler. I was just a guy who repaired the shoes. I didn't even have enough knowledge to make shoes. In other words, I'm just an ordinary man, but that's who God uses. Simple, ordinary people to take the Gospel. Verse 5, we're told of one specific man who took the Gospel with him. Philip, who was just a deacon. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by, by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed so that there was much joy in that city. Fascinating that Stephen goes forth and he is healing people, casting out demons. Uh, Stephen and now Philip seem to be exceptions to the rules that the miracles were done by the hands of the apostles. Mainly they were done by the apostles, but miracles were not confined to the apostles. Now, R.C. Sproul makes a very good observation here, and I never saw this before. But he had mentioned of all the miracles recorded in the Old Testament, 
whether performed by Moses or Elijah or someone else, there is no miracle in which demons were exercised. I found that fascinating. I I never made that observation before. He said, Jesus came and was the first to exercise demons. And when He did so, He noted its significance. And in Luke 11.20, Jesus said, If I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God is among you. So one of the signs in which the kingdom of God had finally come is the casting out of demons. Because formally, Satan was in control. But Jesus coming, He's doing battle against Satan. And He is setting people free. He's binding the strong man as you was the illustration he used. He's going into his house and he is plundering the strong man's house. And plundering the strong man's house means setting people free who he had held captive before. And now people are being set free and this is continuing on. It's happening with the apostles and now here we see it happening with the ministry of Philip. People possessed by demons, controlled by demons, are being set free, which indicates that the kingdom of God is going forth and people are experiencing freedom. And they are being healed as well. So as a result, there is much joy in the city. Much joy. And we should remember that this is happening through an ordinary man. So often we like to elevate these guys, right? Oh, Stephen, wow. Philip, wow. You know what's going to happen when we, when we get to heaven? We're going to be walking and one day we're going to come across Stephen and then we're going to come across Philip. You know what our first thought's going to be? That's Philip. Looks like an ordinary guy. Just an ordinary guy. He's going to say, what, what were you expecting? It's not a result of me. It's a result of the power of God in me. God was gracious enough to use me. Just ordinary men and women. So you and I should be greatly encouraged. God also brought uh, the Jews and the Samaritans together through the overthrow of false religions. And there's specifically one mentioned here, verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Did it have an impact? Oh, yeah. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with their magic. Now, what was his magic? I don't know exactly what it was. I don't know if he had demonic power uh, that gave him supernatural power from the dark side. Um, I don't know if he was just a phony, if he was a first century Houdini, uh, you know, who just tricked people and they thought he was somebody great. Uh, but he affected all of Samaria, and we're told that from the least to the great, greatest, they thought he was something special. In the middle of the second century, Justin Martyr, who himself was from Samaria, said that Simon of Samaria did many mighty acts of magic, so that he was considered a god and was worshipped not only by almost all the Samaritans, but even by some in Rome who erected a statue in his honor. So even by the middle of the second century, Simon was well known and the testimony is that they thought he was God. God incarnate. They worshipped him. 
And they even erected a statue in honor of Simon because he was such a great person. Twelve. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, and notice he's preaching about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God that has come, probably reminding them that Jesus Christ, the King of the kingdom, is at the Father's right hand. And he's also preaching about the name of the Lord Jesus. They were baptized, both men and women. Interesting, even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. So the man that had formerly amazed others now is himself amazed. But I want you to notice that these people were religious. We need to remember that everybody outside the church is religious. We tend to think that if you go to church, you're quote-unquote religious. Have you ever been called that? You know, you're religious. I remember when I told someone on one occasion that I went to church in the morning and in the evening. They said, wow, you go in the evening too? They said, wow, you're really religious. I said, well, it depends on how you define religious. But we tend to think of Christians as religious, but everybody out there, they're secular. Uh, They're not religious. Well, you know what? They are. Everybody is religious. Everybody is a worshiper. This is what Paul says in Romans 1. After saying in verse 20 that everybody knows there's a God because of creation. 21, although they reject this God. He says in 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Deliberate exchange. I don't want the truth. I want the lie. Give me the lie. Why would they want the lie? Because then they can live however they want. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I don't want the truth. I want the lie. I don't want to worship the Creator. I want to worship creation. I want to worship rocks. I want to worship trees. I want to worship pleasure. I want to worship money. I want to worship myself. I want to worship you name it. But they worship. Those who travel the world and look at different civilizations or tribes have yet to discover an unreligious or an irreligious people. Religion is predominant worldwide. Everybody is a worshiper. They just have to be set free from the lie and they have to worship the truth. But everybody's a worshiper. It's just not obvious what or who they're worshiping until you talk to them. But if you listen to people, it's fascinating how that that worship element or that religious element comes up. I was in the store yesterday and I wish I could have heard the conversation, but I just overheard a couple of people saying, well, I worship Jesus in my own way. And I was like, oh, I wish I would have heard more of that. I would have liked to have walked over there and entered into the conversation. But, but I thought it was interesting. You know, here's a couple people, they, they just, they worship. They just don't have the truth. Um, they're working out their salvation in different ways. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to some Mormons. And I realized right away that they are working for their salvation. And you know what? Um, I think we might need to think about the Mormons 
uh, a little more than we presently are because we may have the first Mormon president in the history of this nation in a few months. And everybody asks, well, what will be the political implications if Mitt Romney is elected? And yes, that's, that's a question. We should ask that question. But I don't hear very many people asking, what will the religious implications be if a Mormon president is elected? Now, I'm not talking about politics right now. I'm talking about religion. And my fear is that he will legitimize the Mormon religion and people will start to look at it more and more. Which means that as Christians, we better have some answers as why they want to reject the Mormon cult or false religion and why they need to embrace true Christianity. We need to have some answers because they may embrace the lie rather than the truth. And we have to have some answers. And we have to show them that Christianity has much more to offer. And by the way, I I think it's fascinating that uh, Philip basically wins the day because Christianity was more amazing than the false religion that they had all embraced. And we should show people Christianity is amazing. I mean, we really can take the positive route. Christianity's amazing. Let me tell you the difference it's made in my life. Can I tell you? Look at positive. Let people know Jesus Christ makes a difference. He transforms lives. It truly is amazing, is it not? Let's tell people about it and they can join us. So that's what Philip does. He brings to them the amazing gospel and they, and they believe it. Even Simon believes it. We'll see what that means in a minute. Fourth way in which God brought Jews and Samaritans together was through unusual circumstances. That was verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who were the strongest two pillars in the church at this time. Peter and John. So they sent the top two dogs, if you will. Okay, I'm saying that reverentially. <laughs> okay, the top two guys in the church to investigate this, which tells you how important it was, who came down and prayed with them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For He had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is interesting and this causes great confusion in the church. seems we have a two-stage conversion here, right? They believe in Jesus. They're baptized in the name of Jesus. But then you have this post-conversion experience in which you receive the Holy Spirit. Their Pentecostal experience, if you will. Now, the big question at this point, is this to be normative or not? And I want to say to you, I don't believe this is to be normative at all. In many places, Paul assumes that if you have Christ you have the Spirit. If you don't have Christ, you don't have the Spirit. So why do we have this exception here? Well, first of all, let me point out that I think even in Luke's language, we have a hint that it is an exception. Because in 16, he says, for he, referring to the Holy Spirit, 
which is a reminder that he's a person, not just a force. For he, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. Notice how he says they've only been baptized in the name of Jesus. Even how he states that, it's unusual. Otherwise, he would just state it as a matter of fact. Well, of course, you know, at this point, they'd only received Jesus. They hadn't been baptized in the Holy Spirit because they hadn't received stage two yet. But he even describes it as something unusual, something that's not normative in the history of the church. And again, let's, let's remember this is a, a narrative. This is not didactic teaching. So we have to be careful about how we apply stories and narratives to theology. Now, why would we have this unusual two-staged approach as opposed to the normative one-stage approach? Because of the great animosity that existed between Samaritans way over there and Jews way over there. And that really is how they viewed each other. There really was a huge chasm between Samaritans and Jews. One commentator said, History records intense animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews that had lasted hundreds of years. In 721 B.C., the Assyrians took the inhabitants of Israel, the northern kingdom, off to Assyria, where the Jews intermarried with the Assyrians and the Kithites. The Jews intermarried with unbelieving pagans in disobedience to God's word. In eight or excuse me, in five eighty seven BC, the people of the southern kingdom, Judah, were taken captive into Babylon. But in Babylon there was no intermarriage. They remained pure. They would only marry fellow Jews. So when those Jews came back to their homes, they were of unadulterated Jewish blood unlike the inhabitants of the northern kingdom. To the Jews, the Samaritans were a mongrel nation of half-breeds. The Jewish rabbis in the first century said, let no man eat the blood of the Kuthites, meaning the Samaritans, for he who eats their bread is as he who eats swine's flesh. And you know what Jews thought of swine. A popular prayer in those days said, and Lord, do not remember the Samaritans and the resurrection. So this just gives you a hint of the animosity that existed between the Jews over there and the Samaritans over there. So again and again, the Jews would say to the Samaritans, we really don't like you. We really despise you. And the Samaritans would respond in kind. And guess what? We don't like you either. So there really was this great chasm between the Jews and the Samaritans. But what does God want to do in the Gospel? God wants to bring them together. This is not going to be easy from a human perspective. Because these groups really do hate each other. And let me just give you one example from the Gospels that makes it really clear. I think one verse in in John 4, and it's just a parenthetical thought, but it really describes it well. Uh, When Jesus comes to the uh, Jacob's well and he has the encounter with the Samaritan woman, John just says parenthetically, for his disciples had gone away to buy food. 
And when they came back, they were amazed. They saw him talking to this Jewish woman. And then he says, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They, just, they have nothing to do with each other. And when the religious leaders came against Jesus, remember they knew about Mary uh, becoming pregnant before she was married. Um, word had spread about that. And when they wanted to mock Jesus, what did they do? This is what John 8 says. Let me see if I can find the passage. Uh, they said, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? John 8, 48. So in the first century, the greatest put-down was you're a Samaritan. So I, I picture kids on the playground and they're, you know, they're having those combats. Sometimes they go back and forth. Well, you're this. Well, you're this. Well, you're you're a Samaritan. I mean, that was just that was like the greatest put down. That that was like the, the greatest way in which they could blast Jesus. Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon possessed? In their mind, there wasn't anything worse. But again, God is trying to bring these two groups together. So how is He going to do it? He's going to do it by creating a situation. So that the two biggest pillars in the church, two Jews, have to go to Samaria personally, intermingle with the Samaritans, see that they really have put their faith in Jesus Christ, and then God will use the apostles themselves to lay their hands on the Samaritans so that they can receive the Holy Spirit, so that they can be assured that they really are part of the body of Christ. And then God would use Peter and John, again, the two greatest pillars in the church. They would go back up to Jerusalem and they would tell the whole Jewish church, guess what God has done in Samaria? You're not going to believe what He has done in Samaria. And He would relay that story so that Jews and Gentiles would come together and be one in the body of Christ. And if you carefully read through the epistles, and especially look at Ephesians 2, you see that God is very intent and He uses Paul specifically to bring Jews and not only Samaritans, but Gentiles together so that they can be part of the body of Christ. And that's what's happening here. And that's why we have this unusual situation. If you think it's normative, if you think apostles have to lay their hands on people who have believed in Jesus but have not yet received the Holy Spirit, you have to say, well, we have a problem here because we no longer have apostles. Not, not just anybody did this. This was something very specific. Apostles did this so that they could be incorporated into the body of Christ to demonstrate that God is including everybody. The application here is that God wants His people to be unified. It's God going to whatever lengths He has to to say the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. There's no longer Jew or Gentile or Samaritan in the body of Christ. We are all one in Jesus Christ. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are all one in Jesus Christ. And I think this is important for us to remember. I tell people that as I, as I mature as a Christian, as I grow in my theology, my theology becomes more and more narrow, more and more defined. But as my theology becomes more narrow, more defined, as I become more convicted about what I believe, my acceptance for brothers and sisters in Christ who view things differently has broadened. And, and I know that that seems counterintuitive, but it really has. 
And, and I think it should be that way because we should be more clear on what the Gospel is. And to be able to say, okay, if we can agree on the Gospel, you know what, if people have different views on baptism, if they have different views on the gifts, if they have different views on eschatology, if they have different views on ecclesiology, church governments, you know what, I can live with that. We're, we're all in the body of Christ. And hopefully we can disagree agreeably. And we can talk to each other and challenge each other. But we really, there really is. And we, we say it in our creeds, don't we? Mm-hmm. We believe in how many churches? One, One church. You know, it's not like we're going to get to heaven and we're going to say, you know, what's, what's the name of this church? <laughs> and what's the name of the church in heaven? You know, Not a Baptist church. Not a Presbyterian church. Not an independent church. One holy apostolic church. There's only, there's only one church. We're all part of the same church. And even though we have disagreements, we need to realize that it really is one church of Jesus Christ that we're all a part of. And then just one final way in which God brought the Jews and the Samaritans together. And that was through a mixture of true and false conversions. A mixture of true and false conversions. And this is where we talk about Simon a little more. Uh, Verse 18 says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. I hope you can see right away how crass that is. Oh, let me give you guys some money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone in whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Notice carefully here, he doesn't say, Lay your hands on me that I would receive the Holy Spirit. Give me this power so that others on whom I lay my hands will receive the Holy Spirit. Then everybody would rush to me because I could be a conduit for the Holy Spirit. And they would still think that I'm somebody great. See, they used to all think that I'm somebody great. But then you brought the Gospel in here and amazed everybody with the Gospel. And now I'm a nobody. But if you could give me this power, if I could purchase it, then I'd be a somebody again. And everybody would come to me to receive the Holy Spirit. That's what he's after. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. R.C. Sproul interpreted this bluntly. May you and your money go to hell. That's what Peter is saying. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter or in this ministry for your heart is not right before God. You are not right before God. Even though it says earlier he had believed, Peter says very clearly, Your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. That you are slave to sin. In other words, you have not been set free. You're not right with God. And you're in trouble spiritually unless you repent. This is not a genuine believer. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. 
Now, at first, that may seem like an okay response, but it isn't. What did Peter tell him to do? You repent. You pray to the Lord. What does Simon say? No. No. Basically, what he said, no. You pray to the Lord for me so that I could escape the judgment. Not you pray to the Lord so that I could be converted and have the Holy Spirit. I just want to escape the judgment. This, this is not a Christian. Have you ever had an, an unbeliever say to you, you know, I'm going through a difficult time. Would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? I, I know you pray. Would you pray for me? And have you ever responded by saying, well, you know, you, you could pray. <laughs> you, you, you could pray. You, you could ask God to intervene in your situation. And they say, no, just please. Just, or they just ignore you. No, just please, you pray for me. Why do they say that? Let's think through the psychology of this a little bit. Why do they say that? Because they know you have a connection with God. They, they say this in various ways, right? They know somehow, maybe they don't know how to say it because they're not Christians. They don't have the language. They know, No, you have a connection to God. You have a link to heaven. I don't know how. God listens to you. I, I know that. You have a relationship with God. They probably don't understand that. For them, it's just some kind of vague connection. But instinctively, they also know God doesn't listen to me. I, I would feel stupid praying. They, they might not say, I'd feel so dumb getting down on my knees and saying anything to God. I, I would just feel foolish. Why would they feel foolish? Because they really know they have no relationship with God. They really know they have no connection. So, prayer is foreign to unbelievers. It's foreign. They, they don't understand it. You, you have to have a relationship to understand prayer. Simon has no connection. He's not seeking a connection. He asked the apostles. No, you have a connection with God. I can see that. If you would pray for me, that's not what he's told to do. You have to repent. We can't do that for you, Peter could have said. Um, he's not converted. Now, here's the difficulty. What did verse 13 say? Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Well, what are we to make of that? He believed he was baptized along with everybody else in Samaria. He blended right in with, with the other believers. Was he or was he not a Christian? And here's something that was very clear to me as we went through the Gospel of John. I, I never saw before. But we need to understand that the Bible doesn't always distinguish between a general belief that the facts are true and a belief that says this is saving belief. And we saw that again and again in John, that people would believe, but Jesus wouldn't entrust Himself to them because He knew it wasn't real belief. And that's what we have here. Simon believes in the facts of the Gospel, probably because the miracles are taking place right before his eyes. He's amazed. He doesn't doubt that what he's seeing is the real thing. He believes this really is Jesus Christ working, but it's not a genuine converting belief. And how do we know that? Because of his life and what takes place later. When I was talking to those Mormons a couple weeks back that I had mentioned, um, I was hammering home the point that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. And I was giving them different passages, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, uh, Romans 3, 28, we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And one of the Mormons said, uh, 
So you're saying that we can believe in Jesus and then we can just live however we want. I said, nope. Absolutely not. I said, if a person says they believe in Jesus and there's no transformation of life that follows, they haven't really believed in Jesus. Now, they made it very clear that they were working for their salvation. I asked a typical question. If you were to die tonight in a car accident, God forbid, and you were to stand before the gates of heaven, and the angel Gabriel said, why should I let you in? What would you say? And his answer was, I've applied the atonement of Christ, and I hope I've done enough. And when he said, I hope I've done enough, I said, oh, no. I said, you're in trouble. I said, you're in trouble. You're, you hope you have done enough? i got to tell you, you haven't done enough. Don't, don't you understand the standard, of, the standard of God is perfection? Perfection. I said, you, have you lived a perfect life? Have you ever lied? Ever stolen? Ever looked at a woman lustfully? For taking God's name in vain? Have you ever done any of those? Yeah. I said, you're in trouble. God requires perfection. Not, not just trying hard. You're in trouble. But then I made it clear. We are saved by faith alone. But the, save, the faith that saves is never alone. It is accompanied by good works. Or we could state it this way. We're saved by faith alone, but we're saved unto good works, not by good works. So I said that this morning. I understand what you're saying. Those who say they believe, but there's not a change in life, really haven't believed. That's, that's the point. So the change in life shows that our faith was genuine. Simon doesn't have this. Simon believes to a certain point, but we know it's obvious that it's not enough. Because it doesn't change his heart. He's still full of gall. He's still in the bonds of sin. And, and he, he's so corrupt and so crass that, that he thinks he can buy ecclesiastical standing. It's, it's fascinating in church history. Buying a church office, that's ecclesiastical church office. Buying a church office, uh, which was rampant uh, at the time of the Reformation and appalling to Martin Luther. But people would buy different offices with their money. And it was called simony. And it comes from this guy right here who thought he could use his money to gain some kind of standing in the church. Peter, that, 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 that's so corrupt that you think money is what buys your, your spiritual position. He's corrupt. He's not converted. Uh, probably never was as we know. And then verse 25, Now when they had testified and spoke the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, but not before going throughout all Samaria, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. What had taken place with Philip was what we would call today a revival. It was basically revival. God worked mightily. Uh, they were baptized in droves. The apostles saw this. And basically, the, God, the revival probably just spread. Again, God bringing Samaritans and Jews together so that they're one in the body of Christ. And the kingdom is going forth. And isn't it great? Going forth with, yes, some, some men who are quote-unquote professionals, but mainly just ordinary men. We take the gospel with them wherever they go. 
And I tell you, that's, that's exciting. That's exciting. I'm just going to close with a short story. I wasn't going to share this. But, you know, last Friday, Michelle and I were working at the health club, and I was talking to one guy that I'd seen there for, for quite a while, and I just got to talking to him, and he started to tell me about his church and, you know, how when his pastor talks, you know, it's directly at him. And I thought, ah, I know where this is going. He's going to ask me where I go to church. He's going to invite me to church. And I thought, he can't ask me that. I'm a pastor. <laughs> so I beat him to the punch. Michelle was standing next to me, and I said, uh, honey, what do you think of your pastor? She said, I love my pastor. I, I think he's just the greatest guy in the world. I, I'm glad she didn't give one of her typical lines. Every once in a while, she'll say, well, I sleep with my pastor. And I thought, this is why I'm throwing this guy for a loop, you know. <laughs> what kind of church are you a part of, you know. Uh, but we got to talk, and, and it was wonderful. And, and he said, yeah, I work out with this guy, and I invite him to church. But he, he has all these questions. And there's, there's this other guy that I, I'm working out with now, and, and I've talked to him, but he's not interested right now. Uh, but the woman who's running, I, I invited her to church, and, and she comes with her husband now. And I thought, this is beautiful. This guy's taking over the place. And, and, he's, and, I, and I told him the other day, you know, Michelle gave him a copy of my book, and he thanked me for the book. And I said, you know what, I want to thank you too. You were such an encouragement to my wife and I. We went home, we said, so great to see just an, an average Christian just sharing the faith with people wherever they go. And he said, I just try in the first conversation, if I can, to, to talk to people. And I, and I figure, what do I have to lose? They might think I'm strange. And he said, just every week, I just try to invite someone to church. And I thought, that's, that's awesome. Wow, I'm, I'm challenged. That's great to see. Ordinary, everyday people filled with the Holy Spirit, talking to the guy they work out at the health club, talking to their neighbor, talking to the woman that they have tea with, talk, talking to her, and the kingdom of God goes forth. The kingdom of God advances. And that's what we're called to do. May God help us to be bold wherever we go. Let's close in prayer.